This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Environmental, social, and governance investing goes by many names. Socially responsible investing, impact investing, or simply ESG. But by most any measure, it's exploding in interest and demand. My guest today, Derek Bingham, leads the America's arm of the SUSTAIN team in Goldman Sachs Research, which focuses on finding long-term value for investors. He's here to discuss how his team's approach to ESG differs from what's been the typical model in the space. Derek, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Derek, you've written a report that outlines how you see ESG in terms of its impact on the way in which portfolio managers should assess investing. Where are we today in terms of ESG being an investable theme for a mainstream investor? That is, what kind of data is available? What are the tools out there that put that data to use? And how do returns compare against more common benchmarks? The roots of ESG investing came from ESG specialists, folks that wanted to invest behind a certain set of values, wanted to focus on the ESG aspects of their companies, and as a result of that emphasis, rightly or wrongly, got a reputation perhaps for underperformance, or at least of putting returns secondary to ESG considerations. Now this has evolved over time meaningfully. And it started to creep its way into the mainstream. And when I say mainstream, I just mean investment managers who kind of historically weren't spending a lot of time on ESG topics in a lot of different ways. So that would include taking third-party ratings on ESG into consideration over their companies. This is basically using outsourced experts to do it for you to starting to develop in-house expertise. And we're seeing more and more kind of household names in terms of asset management here in the United States, build significant internal resources in terms of ESG specialization. Our message with this report is that those two activities shouldn't be two different activities. They shouldn't be siloed. Environmental and social data just gives you more information about companies that you didn't already have. And so there's no reason why the mainstream portfolio manager can't do both. One of the more interesting findings in this study was that focusing just on the company's reporting or transparency of ESG policies was actually correlated with underperformance, but it was performance on ESG factors that was actually material. In other words, the reporting itself around having a policy in place doesn't seem to be that value added, but it's the performance against specific data that makes a difference. It seems like if you're not careful in this space, some ways of using ESG data could be detrimental. What are the common pitfalls that you've seen amongst investors that are using this data in less constructive ways? Well, I think the big challenge is that there's there's no consistently followed set of standards for ESG data the way that there is with you know, financial data. So that means that companies have enormous degrees of freedom in terms of how they conduct their ESG reporting. And the result is non-standardized data. It's hard to compare. It's kind of a random walk. And it tends to be very heavy on policies. It's yes or no data is a way you could think about it. So a company is telling you, yes, we have a policy to prohibit bribery. Or yes, we have a customer safety policy or a data privacy policy or an energy conservation policy. What it doesn't tell you is what they're actually doing 
underneath the policy. How they're managing toward a result. Yeah, or if they're even being effective and having success at what they're trying to manage. And so the risk is, of course, the temptation potentially for a company is that you put out a beautiful 100-page report about your corporate social responsibility behavior, and it says a lot without really telling you anything, light on measurable performance, and what ultimately might be largely a PR exercise, and that's what's sometimes described as, quote-unquote, greenwashing. So the risk is, of course, and I think that's one of the big challenges, especially in the early days, but I think it's, it still is, is that you take a company saying a lot about what they're doing in ESG as your data point or as evidence that they're actually being successful or that they're actually a leader amongst their peers when it might be very vague and not really comparable. And that's what still today, you know, when you look at the ESG data points, the databases that are available to you, the bulk of that information is still based on policies. A lot of investors, a lot of mainstream investors are quite familiar with the G of ESG, governance, and they already incorporate various attributes that fall under that governance umbrella into their investment decisions. Why is governance perceived as further along in being an investable concept than environmental and social factors? Well, I think investors have just been thinking about governance longer, and the data is all there. There's no mystery about the number of independent directors a company has on its board. Investors know that information. It's well disclosed. It's easy to compare one company against another in terms of common governance practices. In the environmental and social world, on the E and the S vectors, there's some things that are changing, though, that are kind of helping ENS get caught up. And for one, the data sets have come a long way, so there's just a lot more data available. Companies are disclosing more. The kind of data also is getting better. So what's growing faster, even though it's off a smaller base right now, are actual quantifiable metrics that give you something that's specific about how a company is performing on a particular ENS topic such that it can be compared to their peers so you can see how well they're actually performing, whether their performance is getting better or worse. The other thing I think that's going to drive, or that, that is driving the E and the S catching up in terms of its focus and its ability to be analyzed is that the ENS risk landscape that we face now is just much more significant than it was if you think about even five or ten years ago. Companies are bigger, they're more global, industries are more concentrated, so companies just have a bigger environmental footprint. When things go wrong, they can go wrong at huge scale. When you think about employee and customer relations, corporate reputation, social media amplifies everything, both good and bad, about a company. And everyone with a smartphone, of course, is now a reporter. So, so the, these risks are just a lot bigger than they used to be. And so the onus for companies to be engaging with them and managing them and telling their investors how they're managing them is just a lot higher. I used to work at a company that began its investor presentations with their safety data because that was a huge priority for the firm. And while the investors, I don't think, really paid a heck of a lot of attention to the numbers and the metrics. They were interested in seeing how well we could manage to a definable set of... Well, I, I heard that talking to, um, talking to an investor recently who had a portfolio company that was a small oil field services company. And they were very concentrated investors, so they, they get very close to these companies and sometimes take board seats. But essentially what he learned in that process was that if this company wasn't able to show large oil company X its impeccable ESG credentials, 
they would not get the business. So in addition to it kind of filtering through to investors, I mean, it's really happening on the ground with companies every day. So I think this kind of complete ecosystem is coming together. Yeah, self-reinforcing. So when you and your colleagues undertook this analysis of the environmental and social factors related to equity outperformance, you were awash in data. How did you narrow your focus to what really mattered? When we looked at the large ESG databases that we had access to, you're dealing with somewhere between four and 800 individual metrics. So it's an insane amount of data. It's messy. The disclosure rates are inconsistent. There are very kind of idiosyncratic things being reported by companies that their peers aren't or things that are very industry-specific. So very, very daunting, I think, for the mainstream investor, the investor that hasn't historically leveraged ESG insights in a significant way to bring it on board as part of their investment process. And the way that we kind of narrowed it down from this kind of chaotic universe of you know, hundreds and hundreds of metrics was in three steps. First, we're trying to find real investment insight for the mainstream portfolio manager. And so the first step is really just asking the question, what really matters to a company's operations? What really matters to this company's ability to be successful in its industry? And it may sound really simple, but when we look at a lot of the kind of ESG resources or rating services or things that are kind of out there and commonly being used, we view them as kind of the kitchen sink approach, you know, where you kind of collect anything and everything that might have anything to do with a company's environmental and social risk profile. But that might include looking at the water intensity of an investment bank, right? Or the... Which hopefully is fairly low. <laughs> right. But what is it telling you? It's telling you about maybe the toilets in office buildings. It's not fundamental to a company's ability to be successful. It might tell you a little bit about it, but in terms of the kind of rank order of things that really matter, what you'd really care about in that business is a company's ability to attract and retain the best talent, a company's ability to manage its reputation, its customer and community relations and regulatory relations. And so those are what really matters. When you think about, say, resource intensity, those would obviously be metrics for heavier industries, you know, for basic resources or some kind of manufacturing that is water intense and where a company's ability to manage uh, its water is a key component of its cost. Uh, it's a key ability for a company to have, you know, competitive advantage versus its peers. And so it's just asking that simple question, you know, what is actually material to the company's ability to be successful? So that's the first step. The second step is really a data availability question. You know, we've kind of decided here are the things that we want to measure. Now, what metrics do we actually have to measure it with? Across the industry, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so you might have three or four good metrics to measure a company's ability to attract and retain talent. You might have five or six metrics about a company's efficiency with how they use resources or about a company's waste and emissions of greenhouse gas or other toxic chemicals. You know, whatever it is that's happening is a basic part of their industry and affects their ability to do business on an ongoing basis. And what do we actually have the data for? You know, there are some data points that we'd really like to have. And it's just not available. It's just not there. So if only one company in 20 in your global peer group actually reports data, it's nice it says something good about that company. But 
as an investor, if you can't compare it with their peers, you don't actually even know if it's necessarily good performance or bad performance. And you can't see kind of what the trends are in the industry. And so there's, there's not much you can do with it. Which brings me to the third point, which is looking at historical relationships with stock performance. There is enough data now that we can start looking over long periods of time. And when I say long periods, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's three to five years. So it's not extremely long, but you can look over these multi-year periods going back five to 10 years as far as you can get the data and look for some relationships with the stocks. And if these elements of environmental and social performance actually do have an impact on how well a company is able to perform, how competitive they are, how successful they're able to be, it ought to show up in their operations and it ought to ultimately have some influence on their stock price. And that's what we found in our study. So when you were looking for outperformance, that third factor, that third question, how different were the kinds of factors that you came up with across sectors, you know, consumer retail versus industrial, or were there some commonalities? Well, there's different factors for different sectors, and to get this right, you know, we think you really have to do it in a tailored way. I mentioned some of the differences, you know, whether it's, you know, quote-unquote a softer business versus a harder business. There would be different things to measure for sure. Some of the takeaways, though, that we found were actually consistent across very different sectors. Diversity, percentage of female employees at a company, was actually something that worked very well across almost every sector, and somewhat of a surprise, the relationship was actually stronger in heavier industries, basic materials, industrials, and utilities, where you know there might be a temptation to kind of cast that aside um, as something that maybe is not so important um, if it's maybe not more of an intellectual property-driven sector or a sector that someone would think of as kind of a talent-driven um, sector. But it tells you something about the culture of the business. Openness. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And so that was one that stood out. You know, employee turnover was another one that showed relatively strong and consistent performance across sectors that we thought was pretty interesting. And that was bringing me to kind of an, another point in terms of our testing, which I think is worth mentioning. You know, I talked a lot about the vague nature of environmental and social policies and how that kind of tended to dominate the data that's put out there by companies. But what's growing faster are actual quantifiable metrics, something that you can actually put a hard number on. And so female representation is a great example of that. You can put a real number on that. Greenhouse gas emissions, lost time injury rates, training hours. There's a growing list of hard metrics. And that's what matters for the stocks. That's where we found the real relationship with outperformance. The companies that performed better on hard metrics are the companies that showed outperformance over long periods of time. The companies that outperformed on policies, the companies that were just really good at disclosing you and telling you tons of stuff, um, most of it vague, actually underperformed on average. So in our test, it suggested to us that you shouldn't give a company credit just for being great at disclosing. It's giving you hard data and metrics that imply that there's real accountability there and performance that you can measure and benchmark, just like we would with anything else as an investor with financial metrics. And there's kind of this third data type that we identified and also tested, which is called targets. And target is still, like a policy, is kind of a binary metric. It's, you know, does a company have a target, yes or no? 
But the difference in a target is that it actually tells you that the company, or it implies anyways, that the company, and sometimes they tell you what the actual target is, but it tells you that the company has a goal of improvement. It also implies that there's some measurement there and that there's some accountability there. So a target might be a target on emissions reduction. It might be a target on resource efficiency, whether it's water, energy, or a target might be on diversity. Those are some common ones. And even though those are kind of yes-no policy-based metrics, because they're targets and they suggest performance and accountability and measurement, those metrics actually also score very well, in fact, equally as well. As regardless group, of what the target metrics, was? Regardless of what the target was, just uh-huh. showing that there's some demonstrable goal-setting going on and that there's measurement. You also note that business ethics improvement tools were among the only policies, that's something that's measured by the binary yes or no in your model, linked to outperformance. Why do you think that was, that showing that you actually have ethics improvement tools in place led to some alpha? That's one of the cases, I think, where you can see an intuitive linkage with value destruction one of the ways that we can help mainstream investors understand why they ought to be paying attention to this is because they've all had that moment where you wake up and there's a headline and there's been some nasty event, you know, some controversy or something else that knocks your stock price down. And a lot of times it's not just a one-time event. You know, most of the time those companies continue to underperform thereafter or the cleanup's a long period of time or it harms their reputation in such a way that it continues to impact their business for years to come. I mean, that's one of the areas that you had to have PMs list incidents that they woke up to that ended up hurting their companies and having them have to kind of rethink, is this a company or a business I really want to own? It has to do with ethics. You know, it has to do with bribery cases. And again, this is a policy. It's something that's hard to measure. So it's one of those areas where there's not great quantitative metrics out there right now that we have, or at least that's reported in any, in any broad way such that we can compare companies. But this policy metric would you know, include things very specific to communications tools to help companies improve their business ethics and includes whistleblower, ombudsman, hotline, website resources. So it at least suggests that there's some amount of activity going on, and it appears to have had desired positive effect on companies who have those practices in place. Interesting. So no doubt some of the increase in data and disclosures in the space has to do with companies competing and copying one another. I certainly saw that in the metals industry. Do you see reports like yours which show clear links between certain factors and long-term success playing a role in future boardroom deliberations? Are companies moving more toward integrating ESG into their business practices? I think it's going on in a lot of different places. When I think about what we hear from companies, from boards, there are increasingly companies that have sustainability committees on their board. There are companies that feel like they think the right way to do it actually is not to have kind of a siloed board, but to have it be integrated, and they make sure that it's a regular topic in their board meetings that everybody has to speak to and address. We've seen it show up more and more in management incentive compensation plans. So that's one of the metrics that's showing the strongest growth in terms of adoption in those incentive plans over the last five years has been some kind of environmental and social metrics, such that people are actually being paid for their performance on these metrics. So we're seeing that for sure. We sometimes hear from directors of sustainability within corporations that they're frustrated that sell-side analysts 
on the earnings calls or at analyst days or whatever are not asking questions about companies' environmental and social performance. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Have you tracked it or taken a look at that? No, and I don't know that we found a good way to track it. But the question would come up about oil spills or accident rates for sure in a company's culture of safety if you're an oil company. It would come up for a tech company. A very reasonable question, which I'm sure is asked all the time, is you know, how are you doing in your battle for talent against all these other Silicon Valley competitors that you've got to go up against every day? So these things really are coming up. It's just maybe not noticed all the time. There's not an ESG section to the earnings call. Yeah, it for, comes up in the course of a normal conversation. For sure. And that's kind of our point. The the GS Sustain research process, we're not ESG specialists. We're looking at companies' ability to sustain long-term returns on capital, and the way that they do that is by having strong competitive position, strong competitive advantage, access to long-term growth, and good governance and risk management practices and managing their ESG considerations over long periods of time. So we're thinking about it from a longer-term investment perspective, but we think that increasingly, Mainstream investors got to realize that this is just more information, again, that they didn't have already. And it's just part of, to kind of silo it into, okay, well, I'm a fundamental stock researcher or I'm actually an ESG stock researcher. Those really shouldn't be two different things. It's all part of the same holistic view of a company and the information's out there. And we're trying to make it easy to use and easy to consume and boiling it down to the stuff that matters most. So this guide was designed for the active investor. But we're obviously hearing a lot in the asset management space about the rise of passive investing and how index funds are thriving during an era when it's really been tough to outdo the benchmark. So what's the relationship today between ESG integration and active management? And as the space evolves, do you see ESG becoming a more common resource for passive vehicles as well? I mean, there's been some news around that recently. I think it's challenging to do ESG in passive effectively. Now, there's some things that you could do at a basic level, but ultimately in passive, you tend to be screening for some very basic things. You know, maybe you're doing kind of a, a low-carbon screen. I mean, that can tell you something, but maybe what it just tells you is a bunch of companies have certain business models or they're doing business activities that just aren't that carbon intensive. Well, it tends to screen out industries, not Yeah, whole, whole, whole sectors, for example. So there's things like that, and, and so it's a little bit clunky. For us, there's kind of two things I would think about in terms of why ESG is such a great category. It's an ideal category for active management. One is the customization angle. If a client comes to an asset manager and will tell you, this is what I care most about on the ESG spectrum. I care about global warming. I care about you know emissions. I care about female diversity. And I don't like state-run enterprises. You know, it could run the gamut. It could be a, a very broad spectrum. But I think in a lot of cases, it's going to be highly customized. And so I think that's just very, very difficult to do in a passive way. The other reason why I think it's such a good active category is the data is imperfect. It has tons of imperfections. We've talked a lot about what those are. And ultimately, it's a mosaic approach. It can give you a good idea of how a company is performing and engaging with ESG risk. It can raise red flags and tell you, okay, these are some areas I need to look further into and understand better. And so that, I think, leads investors to engage with the companies themselves, one, to better understand 
what's really happening in terms of their ESG risk, and two, of course, to help encourage the companies to improve on that performance. So from that point of view, it's a terrific active category. When you step back and look at how quickly some of the growth you've seen in this sector, what do you envision it'll look like in three or five years? I heard it said not too long ago that ESG is a slow-moving, unstoppable train. I'm reluctant to oversell it because I think a lot of the things in the virtuous cycle we've talked about today are things that are happening slowly, but they're happening surely. Since I've been following the trends in ESG integration, there's no question that where we've seen changes in focus, changes in resources, changes in assets, they've all been over time incrementally positive. And I think that continues. There's a lot of things driving it. You know, we see regulation, we see stewardship codes, we see governance codes at ramping, we're seeing reporting and disclosures increase more and more, and we're seeing demand from individual investors to big institutional asset pools asking for this more and more. And so it continues a steady march upward. I heard someone say recently that in Europe, increasingly, if you're an asset manager, it's just table stakes for participation. I mean, if you don't have an ESG strategy and you're not considering these things, you don't have a business. And that might be an exaggeration, but I don't think it's wildly off the mark. And I think the rest of the world is moving in that direction too. Derek, that's a great way to wrap up. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on May 2nd, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.